0: Thank you for listening to a message from the Bowden Church of Christ. For more information, visit www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. That's wwwb You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Bowden Church of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing to you and helps you to serve God and find satisfaction in Him alone. And now, our speaker. Take your Bibles and open up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's good to see every single one of you. We have a full house this morning and uh, it is such an awesome blessing for us to be able to worship God together and to study from uh, his word together. And uh, I feel extremely blessed to have my family with me this morning. Um, it is a wonderful, wonderful day. If you're a visitor this morning, you're our honored guest. We hope that uh, we can be an encouragement to you. We want you to know that you are such a large encouragement to us and we appreciate you being here. Philippians chapter 2 be the text of our lesson. Last week we began a series of lessons out of the book of Philippians talking about things that warm our heart. Now all of us have things that warm our heart, don't we? Things that make us grin, smile, things that we might even say make us happy. You know, I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what it is that brings joy to your heart, that warms your heart. Something about, for instance, if you hear a small infant laughing, there's just something about the laugh of a baby that warms all of our hearts. Just that cackle that a baby has. It's so genuine and pure. I shared a few pictures with you last week that I'll put back up on the screen of things that might bring joy to you. Some of us, we look at animals and animals bring us such great joy. We love our pets. We do most anything. We probably do more for them than we often would for ourselves. Animals sometimes, pets, they bring us great joy. For some of you, I, I know it's the case for Morgan and I, our children bring us great joy. We love our children, even sometimes when they're goofy and they act strange. Even when they do things they're not supposed to, they still bring us such great joy because they're ours and God blessed us with them. And, and they're just, they're, they're wonderful. They bring joy to us. Again, I don't know what it is that brings joy to your life, but that's what we're talking about out of the book of Philippians, that God intends for Christians to be the most joy-filled people in the world. It should be the case that we are the people that are most saturated in joy amongst every group of people in the world that God created. The question is, are we? Do we live that way? Do we show to others that we actually have a bona fide reason to be filled with joy? That's exactly what the book of Philippians is all about. And really the whole Bible, for instance, Psalm 135. You remember this passage. We didn't show this one last week, but we've looked at it in a previous sermon. Psalm 135 and verse 27, where David says, Let those who delight in my righteousness... Shout for joy and be glad. Say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of a servant. How many of us could say that this is descriptive of us, that we delight in God's righteousness, that we shout for joy, and we're glad just because the Lord is who He is, and He's done what He's done for us. Remember we talked about last week out of Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7. Isaiah tells us that God created us for one major reason. And that reason is to bring Him glory. He says, whom I have created for my glory. God created us to glorify Him. And so the tagline that we associated with this sermon that we're going to follow through the whole series is this. God is most glorified in us. I bring the most glory to God when I am most satisfied in Him. When I find my joy and my satisfaction in God above everything else, that's when I bring Him the most joy. And that's exactly what the book of Philippians is all about. Let's review for a moment the book of Philippians, and then we'll dive into our new text this morning, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If you remember, the book of Philippians was written by a man named Paul. It's a pretty short book. I mean, it would only take you maybe 20 to 25 minutes to read slowly if you sat down and read it. It's a very enjoyable book, and it's really encouraging. But Paul wrote it from a place that's not really encouraging. He wrote it from prison. We read that in chapter 1 and verse 7. He talks about his imprisonment. All throughout the letter, he references the fact that he's in prison. And if you'll remember last week, we brought up the fact that Paul is what we called a repeat offender. He's pretty pretty used to prison. He was in prison in Caesarea, in Philippi, in Rome. Those are just the places we know of in the book of Acts. Some historians think he was in prison at least seven times for preaching the gospel or for the situation he got in for preaching the gospel. He was a man that was familiar with prison. But, you know, really his letter, while it mentions him in prison, it doesn't reflect the sadness of a man who may be in prison. In fact, all throughout the book, Paul references this idea of joy that we're going to return to. Before we get into that, let's remember why he wrote the book, though. If you'll remember, Paul wrote this letter for a very specific purpose. He was in prison, most people think in Rome, and he wrote a letter to the city of ancient Philippi where he wrote to them about a, na- a man named Epaphroditus. You remember Paul was in prison and he was probably suffering for the th- from the things that most people in that time in prison would suffer from. And so the church of Philippi, their heart hurt for him and so they sent a financial gift. I don't know what all was included in that gift but they gathered up a gift for Paul and they sent it in the hands of a man named Epaphroditus. And Paul writes back to the church of Philippi for this main reason. He writes them and says, hey, thanks for the gift. I have Epaphroditus with me. He showed up with the gift, but unfortunately when he got here, he got really sick. And really, he he almost died because of being here. But he's better now, and I'm sending him back. And most people believe he sent this letter back in that fashion. That he wrote about Epaphroditus. Now there's other reasons he wrote. He included a lot of things in there. For instance, he thanked them in chapter 4 for the gift they gave him. He wrote to them in chapter 2 and chapter 4 to tell them, hey, y'all need to quit being so divided. In fact, to the point where he called out two particular women in the congregation because they could not ever agree on anything. And remember I asked, how odd would that be if somebody sent a letter to Bald and the elders got up and read it and, and your name was in it. But Paul wrote them this letter. He said, listen, so-and-so and so-and-so, and so, y'all aren't getting along. Y'all need to, y'all need to work things out. And that's in chapter 4 and verse 2. He also wrote to them in chapter 1, "...not to be afraid of those who may oppose Jesus, but to stand firm in their faith." And so these are the reasons that Paul wrote this letter. But all throughout the letter, Philippians is filled with this idea of joy. We, we referenced last week that joy, the word joy or the word rejoice, appears 15 times in this short four-chapter book. Fifteen times. That's a lot to mention something and maybe a conversation that could take 20 minutes to go through. He talks about joy, for instance, in chapter one, when he prays for people. I wonder how often we have joy when we pray for people. Does that bring us joy to know that we're asking God something on behalf of someone else? Paul said he had joy from pr- uh, for praying for people. He also says that our attitude should bring about in us joy. That is, if I have the right attitude, I can be joyous before God. Our attitude really determines a lot of our disposition, doesn't it? I've proposed this before in sermons, but I'll propose it again. Imagine you're going on a trip and before you leave for that trip, you're like, this is going to be a no good, bad trip. It's going to be terrible. It's probably going to rain the whole way. I'm I'm at least going to get one speeding ticket. I'm going to be uncomfortable in the car. I'm not excited about this trip. The food's probably not going to be good on the way. You know, if you have that attitude, what's the likelihood of you having a good trip? It's pretty low, right? Our attitude has a great effect on our internal attitude, our joy. And Paul says, Our joy could be a product of our attitude. He also says in chapter 4 that our reputation should bring us joy. And so he just fills this book full of ideas of joy. It's filled with the idea that Christians should find joy in very specific ways. And so last week, we studied Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And we discovered that if God is going to be most glorified in us when I'm most satisfied in Him, Paul says, I'm going to be joyful regardless of my circumstances. You remember, Paul was in prison, but he didn't consider prison to be a step down. In fact, it was actually a really big benefit for him. He said, in prison, I have an impact on the guard that's with me. I have an impact on the Christians around me. Even though I'm in prison, he said, it doesn't matter because... Because of my imprisonment, other people are preaching about Jesus. And in that, verse 18, he says, I rejoice. And yes, I will greatly rejoice. And so Paul says, I find joy. I am satisfied in God regardless of my circumstances. That would probably do all of us, myself and you, great benefit if we said, you know what, I'm going to be satisfied in God no matter my circumstances. No matter how bad things may seem, I know that in whatever situation I'm in, I can glorify God. In fact, take your Bibles real quick. Let me just step off for a side. Go back to chapter 1, and let's read just a few verses after chapter, uh, verse 18. Remember, we we ended at verse 18 last Sunday, where uh, Paul says that that statement about preaching. He says, what then? Only then in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is He's exalted, He's proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So you and I should find great joy when Christ is lifted up as the most important thing. And he says in verse 19, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope. Notice what he says here in verse 20. I want you to pay careful attention. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That is, the, that is the, the test case of saying, I am satisfied in God no matter my circumstances. I mean, that's like the big two. I'm living or I'm dead. No matter which happens, Paul says, I'm happy that God is exalted. That should be our attitude. In fact, that should bring us great joy. We all know the words that Johnny Lee sang. I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. Maybe sometimes us as Christians, we're looking for joy in all the wrong places. And so Philippians tells us, number one, we find great joy no matter our circumstances. But that's not the lesson. Let's dive into chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Our second place in Philippians that we find joy. This one is somewhat related to what Paul just said. But we're going to add a whole new dimension to it in chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 through 11 together, and then uh, we'll offer some comments, some points of application, and uh, ultimately the lesson will be yours. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. This is what Paul says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from Christ's love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... He says, complete my, and here's your word, joy. This is where we're going to center our lesson. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not out only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember Isaiah 43. Our purpose is to give glory to God. And if we apply what he says here in Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, we are fulfilling that purpose of bringing glory to God. Let's go through these verses very quickly, verses 1 through 11, evaluate what Paul says, and I think I've got 3 maybe 4 points that I'm going to share with you of application and then the lesson will be yours to take it into your week. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, I wonder if you've ever found encouragement in Christ. I wonder if that's ever been a part of your life. He said, If there is any comfort of His love, Have you ever found comfort in the fact that somebody loves you? I know we all do. I put up pictures of a dog earlier. You know that feeling you get when you come home and the person that's most excited to see you or the animal that's most excited to see you is the dog? You know how excited they are? I wonder if we've ever found comfort in that kind of love. Does that give you comfort? I wonder if we ever find comfort in the love of God in that same way. If there's any encouragement, if there's any comfort, he said if there is any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now I want you to know that in the preceding verses, we didn't have time to read these, but verses 27 through 30 Paul introduces the idea of unity and he says that there are going to be people outside that are going to oppose the message of Jesus and in order for you to endure that you need to strive side by side. You need to work together in order to overcome those who don't believe in Jesus. And that's a pretty understandable thing. If we're gonna get anything done in this life we have to work together. In fact it was Jesus in Matthew 12 and verse 25 when he spoke about whether or not he was casting out demons on the power of Satan. He said a house that's divided against itself, a kingdom divided against itself, it can't stand. How many of us have ever experienced that? How much can you get done as a family if everybody in the family is arguing? Well, you can't get much of anything done. Every time you try to talk to one another, the argument comes back up. You can't accomplish anything. Jesus said a house that's it's against itself, it's divided against itself, it can't stand. And so Paul tells them in Philippians 1, 27-30, if you're going to work together as Christians, you have to actually work together, be unified, strive together. And then he brings up in verse 1, Since, if you found any encouragement in Christ, if you found any comfort in His love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, if you find any of that, he says in verse 2, I want you to fulfill my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord or of one accord, depending on your translation, and being of one mind we got to ask the question this morning, what is it that brings us joy? Because we may all be looking for joy in all the wrong places. You know what Paul says brought him joy? What brought Paul joy was when people were working together. When they were of the same mind and of the same love. We all know what it's like when people work together, don't we? We don't really search out environments where it's extremely hostile. I know there are some personalities out there of people who search out hostile environments. I'm not one of those. In fact, I really detest hostile environments. I'm not, I don't function well under stress. Most of us are probably that way as well. I don't like to be in a hostile environment. And Paul says, I want you to fulfill my joy by being of the same mind. Now, there are some qualifications for not having a hostile environment. It's not just to appease everybody. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he says, I want you to fulfill my joy by working together, everyone being of the same mind. And so after verse 2, Paul is going to stop and he's going to do two things, which is really going to be the bulk of our lesson this morning. Two things. Number one. He is going to clarify what he means by unity. And then number two, he's going to give us an example of how to truly live out that way of life every day. So, two things, a clarification and an explanation. Let's look at the clarification very quickly. He says it in verse 3. Paul, what do you mean by being of the same mind? What does that mean? What does it mean to be of the same love? To have one mind, be of full accord. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, in humility, the ESV says, count others more significant than yourselves. I wonder how many times a day you use the word nothing. Many of you have probably heard it used this way. You may have come to a friend or someone you love and said, What's wrong? You know, you can tell something's wrong. You may hear this. Oh, nothing. You ever heard that? You ever heard somebody say, oh, nothing. Or they may say it another way, nothing. You know, the word nothing can actually mean a whole lot of things, can it? We use it as a word that should mean not a thing. But sometimes we use the word nothing to represent much more behind the surface. Nothing. I wonder how many times you use that word. Each day, because when it comes out of our mouth, it may mean something different than the actual definition. I want to propose to you this morning that when Paul used it, he meant exactly what it meant. He didn't mean do nothing, but behind the curtain, oh, yeah, there's a few things that I'm hiding from you. When Paul said do nothing, he meant nothing, he meant not a thing. Don't do a single thing from what? From selfish ambition. Let's talk about those two words really quick. The first is selfish ambition. Some translations use the word self-intrigue or strife. The word strife just means division. We all know somebody who loves strife, don't we? They just love to get the pot stirring, we may call it. They have an ambition to cause problems between other people or to cause division. And unfortunately, it happens. It shouldn't. But it happens that people love to, to stir the pot and to get things going. Paul says do nothing from strife. Do nothing from selfish ambitions. Don't do anything to stir the pot. Okay. But he qualifies what that means. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. I'm, I'm willing to suggest that you probably have used the word conceited before in your life. That would probably be true. You may say of someone else, that person, they're extremely conceited. The word conceited is actually a really simple term. It means someone who is vain or they're all about themselves. They're most concerned about themselves. Have you ever done something for the purpose of benefiting yourself? How about in a marriage? You know, my wife Morgan, I think she walked out so I can say this. Uh, She loves, I'm not going to get in trouble, she loves a lot of things but she really loves that dessert pizza from American Pie. I know that all y'all love it too. It's really good. She loves the dessert pizza. And you know sometimes I want to be a good doting husband and I'll stop by in Carrollton the American Pie and I'll place an order for a pizza to go, that dessert pizza, and I'll bring it home. Now, I always bring it home under the pretense of, I brought you home something, sweetie, but you want to know what? who's going to get a couple of pieces of that pizza? Me. It's torture to sit next to that pizza in the driver's seat and it's hot and I smell it. You know, the 15 minutes back to Bowden is a long 15 minutes. You know, I'm not necessarily doing that for selfless ambitions. I've got myself in mind when it comes. Now, if if I really wanted to do something without any self in mind, I'd buy a jar of pickles. That'd be what I'd bring home. There is nothing in that transaction that would benefit me. Nothing. I don't want anything to do with the the pickle or the juice or the jar or anything. That's all. Even the label. You can take it all. I don't want it. Okay. We all do things for different reasons, but Paul says, I don't want you to do anything for strife reasons to stir the pot. I don't want you to do anything for conceited reasons. What is it that brings him great joy? Us being of the same mind. And what does being of the same mind mean? It means exactly what he says at the end of the verse. But in humility consider the needs of someone else. Consider someone else's wants. Consider someone else's desires. He says count others more significant than yourselves. I have often thought this is the most challenging verse in the Bible. Count other people more significant than yourself. Now, Paul doesn't mean that we have to be self-deprecating because in verse 4 he says that we need to look out not only for our own interest but the interest of others. In other words, it's okay for you to look out for your interest sometimes. What he's saying is you should not be number one all the time. You should not be the most important person in your life all the time. You shouldn't be the person whose wants are always met, whose desires are always met. It shouldn't be all about you. As Christians, our relationship with one another has to be devoid of selfishness. Our relationship with others in this room this morning has to be just absolutely exterminated with selfishness. We have to get rid of it. I should never be doing things as a Christian because it best benefits me or that I can get ahead or I get the best out of that situation or how can I get this better from others. It's not a fact where I ignore myself. It's a fact where I put others first. And so he clarifies what that means. Don't do anything from selfish ambitions or conceit, but count others more significant than yourselves. And then he... After he clarifies, he shows us the exemplification, maybe? He exemplifies it, okay? Verse 5. How do I know that I'm staying on track with what he's saying? Verse 5. Have this mind amongst yourself. You need to have this mind. And what's the mind? It's the mind that is mine in Christ Jesus. It is Christ's word. It is His mind. It is His way of action that I ingrain in myself and I act towards others the way Jesus would. I know that it was kind of I don't know the word I'm looking for. I know that it was it was kinda cliche maybe for people to wear WWJD bracelets. I know that a lot of people wore them, but you want to know what? As a Christian, there's no better question I can ask myself. How would Jesus treat these people? How would Jesus respond in this situation? He said, have this mind amongst yourselves, this mind of non-selfishness, this mind of looking for the best for others, of not being conceited, of not doing what's best for me, but helping to do what's best for others. I am not always number one. Have this mind in you. And so in verse 6, he explains to us what this actually looks like in the life of Jesus. Verse 6, he says this. The foundation of the life of joy is a life that's lived like Christ. And what did Christ do? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul references the state of Jesus before he became a man and after became a man. The Bible tells us all about this. We call it that Jesus made a change from his, what we call, pre-incarnate state. That is, Jesus from all eternity. John chapter 1, and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus existed for all eternity, and he was with God, and he was God. It tells us later in John chapter 5 and verse 58, Jesus quotes the words of of God when he was speaking to Abraham. He says, before Abraham was, or when he was speaking to Moses rather, before Abraham was, I am. The ego in me, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the first and the last. I am God. God. And then he says in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul looks back at Jesus and he says, It is through Jesus that everything was made. He was there at creation. He has always existed. He was God. But John chapter 1, verse 14 tells me that there came a change. I heard someone explain it this way, and maybe you can take it home and chew on it this week and think about it. Jesus, the eternal being, split eternity he split eternity. He existed for all time and he always will exist. But right in the moment in which God planned, he became flesh. The Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He came and brought grace and truth. And Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 tells me that in Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He embodied God. And so when we read Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, that Paul says, You need to have the mind of Christ. Stop being selfish. Stop putting yourself first. Where does he automatically turn? He turns to the story of Jesus, who is the very definition of not putting himself first. He is the very definition of giving up for others. In verse 8, Paul continues and he says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, the death on the cross. Jesus left a place of perfection. The Bible tells us that in the heavenly realm, we don't know a whole lot about it, but we know that in the heavenly realm there are no tears, no pain, no sorrow. He left a place where God dwelled, where he dwelled, a place where there was no lying, no sin, no no hurt and no pain. He lived in the most, most perfect place, but he put on the physical body of a child. Jesus existed as deity, but yet he changed his entire essence, and he put on the body of a child. He scraped his knees. I'm sure he jumped off rocks and played in the dirt, and he grew up with a family. Jesus came and put on flesh, and he grew up in a community. He worked with his hands, he was a carpenter, he learned a trade, he learned how to interact with people. When he was a teenager, he probably had friends. He may have helped his mother around the house. He was a man, God in the flesh. As he grew into a man, he was serious about what God sent him to do. He called his disciples, he taught them about God and how his scheme of redemption was coming to a close to be fulfilled. I know that he built strong relationships with the people that he met because he was there when Lazarus was dead and he watched him walk out of the grave. I know that he came back to Bethany later in his ministry and Mary anointed him with oil with Lazarus, the one who rose from the dead, sitting across the table. I know that he was a man who was falsely accused. His closest friend turned his back on him, one of his closest friends. He was beat with whips. He was forced to carry an extremely heavy piece of wood that was ultimately used to take his own life His mother stood near the cross and she watched her son die for doing absolutely nothing wrong. And Paul looks back at that and he says, That is the picture of what this means. Jesus. God in the flesh. And I want you to look at him and see that is what true joy should look like. He was in the form of a man... And he humbled himself to die on the cross. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 tell me this. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gave up what was best for him to come and do what was best for us. Jesus gave up what was best for him to come and do what is best for us. How many of us could say that we've done this? I heard an interview the other day, uh, maybe it was this morning, uh, a gentleman was talking about, um, he, he, was just, he was talking about all different kinds of things that happened in life, but he was talking about how much he had used his phone and, and the thing that had led him to stop using his, his phone, which is kind of off-subject, but it, it applies here. He said this, the, the thing that caused him to put his phone down, he was having a playful conversation with his daughter, and his daughter asked if, she could, uh, if he could help her create an imaginary friend. And he just playfully asked her why. And this was her response. She said, I want an imaginary friend to talk to when mommy and daddy are on their phones. You know, when we think about doing what's best for others, I'm afraid that sometimes we don't do it even what's best for those who are around us. We don't think about what's best for those that are so close to us. But Jesus, he gave up what was best for him to do what was best for us. We know that this happens in all kinds of areas. Parenting, we have to give up often what's best for us to do what's best for children. In marriage, you have to often give up what's best for yourself to do what's best for the two of you. In work and in, in the church, all different areas, we give up what is best for us, or we should, to do what is best for others and Paul holds up Jesus as this example for the one that did this, what we have to answer is, what am I going to do about that? What am I going to do with the story of Jesus? What am I willing to give up? Religion in our society has been cultured down, it's been boiled down and reduced to such a superficial act of something that I do more as a social interaction than anything else. I go to it to see what I can get the most out of it. I do everything I can to make sure that I am served above anyone else. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this, You want to truly have joy? Stop looking for it in the wrong places and put other people as more important than yourself. Put Jesus as more important than yourself. Joy comes from choosing Christ, not taking the path of least resistance. Everything else in the world offers deception. But Jesus offers this true fulfillment. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. Maybe God isn't as glorified in us because we haven't actually found our satisfaction in Him. What do I think the point of Philippians chapter 2 is? I believe there are a couple of things we can learn from it. First of all, I think the overarching theme of what Paul is saying about the unity of the church as they're pressing against those who oppose Jesus, he's telling you and I that I am never going to be truly satisfied in Christ when only the person I'm concerned about is myself. I'll never truly be satisfied in Christ. And so Paul says this throughout this passage. He says that I have found joy, verses 3 and 4, in putting other people first. The question we have to ask is, do we? Paul says, I found joy in putting other people as more important than myself, but do you and I find joy in that? Paul says, I find joy, I don't know if this is a word, I think it is, in Christlikeness. It's a long word nonetheless. I find joy in Christlikeness, being like Jesus, putting others first. Do we? Paul says, I have found joy in Christ's sacrifice, that He gave Himself up for me. Do we? Or are we just looking for joy in all the wrong places? Here's a thing I learned at the very end of this passage that uh, should be humbling to us. We're either going to bow our knee to Jesus now or we will in eternity. He says that He exalted Jesus and gave Him a name that is above all names and that at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. What are you going to do with Jesus today? We can walk away from Jesus and leave him behind and live our own life in the world. We can strive to serve self and serve others and put Jesus at the very last of the list and make our priorities very clear that it's me, it's myself, it's I, it may be others, those that I love, and God's at the bottom of the list. Or I can say, without a doubt, I'm looking at what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and saying, I'm going to put God first. Listen, it's not about how good you can be. I have tried and dipped my toe in about every area of this life and every area of life that, that claims to bring satisfaction. And every single time I have come up feeling less and less happy. Am I going to find my joy in Jesus? And so Paul tells me that he finds joy in Christ being magnified. But do you? God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. If you need to change that this morning, if you need to obey the gospel, or if you need to come back to the Lord because you know one day every knee is going to sit on the ground before God, please do it as we stand and sing.